Patriotic education. Sounds good, but what does it really mean? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. Every culture everywhere throughout time has necessarily required that the education system shape and mold young, innocent minds to define its identity and to preserve itself for the future. Think about it. There's no culture anywhere on earth or anywhere in history you can think of that doesn't do this. I grew up in the 1950s when we daily pledged allegiance to the flag, and it Indeed, it does seem that all of us did feel patriotic. We knew America, the country we loved, had beaten back a horrible threat of racist fascism. We were proud of our history, and many of us, including myself, still are. America welcomes dissent. It welcomes all suffering people from all the earth looking for freedom and a chance to live a decent life. We were taught that America had been a colony, but that we were determined to rule and govern ourselves. Our role in the world was to stand up for the little guy, the oppressed, yearning to breathe free. We knew that. Logically, America would always stand shoulder to shoulder with people occupied by a foreign force. Then came Vietnam. Our patriotic education had convinced us we would never even think about supporting an oppressive regime. But that we did. Our patriotic understanding was shaken. But luckily, we had that patriotic education that so valued at its core dissent and freedom for all. Fast forward a few decades and here we are. President Trump has put forth his plan to dramatically change American education, to take away the traditional freedom of local districts and teachers and to impose a narrow new definition of patriotism. The essence is to teach only the positive myths, period. No longer allow kids to learn what is occasionally ugly, uncomfortable truth. Forget critical thinking skills, never mind that. Our guest today, Ben Railton, has written about this new threat to academic freedom titled Trump's Patriotic Education Commission, Yet Another Battle Over the Meaning of Those Words. I saw it on the History News Network, which I highly recommend. Ben Railton is professor of English studies and coordinator of American studies at Fitchburg State University and president of the New England American Studies Association Council. His book, Of Thee I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism, will be published on January 2021 if the government lets him. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, Ben. I assume Trump's new proposal on what he calls patriotic education sparked you to write this. Please tell us about his proposal and what you think propelled him to do this now. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Bert. It's a pleasure to be talking to you about these really important uh, topics, both 2020 topics and overall American topics, as you nicely framed it. Um, So, yeah, you summed up that proposal really nicely. But what I would add about the particular way that Trump defined this challenge to the current educational system, as he framed it, was that he he argued not just that 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 schools were teaching um, what he wanted to define as as an unpatriotic uh, version of American history and thus were teaching America's young people, he argued, in, in presenting this proposal to hate America, to hate the United States. He even went further than that. He called it a form of child abuse, that this was a sort of radical indoctrination that would you know, genuinely harm not just 
the nation, but its its children, the subjects of those of that educational system. And in terms of why he did this now, I would say there are two main factors I would emphasize. Uh, the most prominent, like so many of the things that have happened in the last few months or year, is I think an attempt to create division and appeal to his base in so doing in order to to uh, get that base ready for a very divided election and its aftermath. This is a kind of us versus them yeah. frame, like so many of them have been, um, to pit this we that he's creating against these these forces that oppose them, these forces that are out to get them, and in this case, out to get their kids. He's, he said something like, every patriotic parent would agree with me, creating that us in opposition to this fearful them. And quickly, the other factor I would sure. say that is part of this, I think, is a larger or an ongoing also conversation that, that we'll get back to other pieces of here about about the way American history is taught and about a continued effort to add to that, um, add to that curriculum, add to those educational conversations with genuinely uh, layers of, of, of complexity, of, of depth, of even but the contradictions that are part of America. And so things like the 1619 Project yes. that, that Trump was specifically calling out um, are part of that ongoing effort and have, have led to a backlash from a number of different conservative commentators who see them as really fundamentally, again, unpatriotic. So he is part of that larger narrative, but he was also using it to create this really clear us versus them kind of division. <laughs> uh, I can't help but be reminded, knowing a little bit of history as I do, of uh, the French king who said, "L'État c'est moi, I am mm -hmm. the state," and and people mm -hmm. think Trump is America. Anything other than that is not America. You mentioned the 1619 project. I've heard of that, but not having kids in high school now, I'm I'm really not familiar with it. But please tell us about what the 1619 project is and what kind of reactions. It has gotten from Trump and others on the right. What's what has been said? What is the project, and what's been said about it? Sure. Yeah, the project is is a New York Times Magazine kind of special issue. Uh, that's where it began, but then it has engendered a curriculum, a, a curriculum that can be used in schools. So it's both uh, journalism and public history, and then an educational resource as well. And and what it did was it brought together the New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who conceived it, brought together a large group of historians, authors, artists of various types to uh, reflect on both the history of slavery in America and its legacies, the aftermaths, the continuing effects, the continuing echoes of those histories in, in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, and it did it through a variety of means, storytelling, historical documents, contemporary analysis, but all with that overarching idea of helping us better understand this key American history, um, one that can be seen as a part of our origin points, a part of our mm. founding identity, not the only part, but a part. Um, and then its legacies, its ongoing presence and aftermaths in various ways. Um, and, and what I think has really set off Trump and figures like him, those making the case for this, this a very narrow version of both patriotism and America, as you put it, is the idea that it's either a celebration of America or something un-American, that, that we can't possibly hold in our heads these multiple layers to an America that we could still ultimately feel patriotic towards. And so that by raising these histories, by sharing this kind of story, by arguing that this is a part of America all along, slavery and its legacies and its aftermaths, that these, these voices are 
ultimately simply attacking America, that they are simply presenting a version to be hated, um, rather than, again, trying to make the case for a fuller picture of a nation that we could still feel patriotic toward, which is, is certainly how I would read the 1619 Project and how I believe it presents itself. I'm Nicole Hannah-Jones presents it is creating that fuller picture in order to allow us to more accurately and genuinely feel patriotic towards this nation's ideals. But that's certainly not how, how the, the adversaries like Trump have framed it. Wow, interesting. You know, people, people get married and they idealize their partner, who they're committing their lives to, and then they find out, well, it's not, she's, or he's not perfect. Uh, but they tend to stick with it. And I love this quote from Emma Goldman. Uh, she was questioned about her patriotism in July 1917, before she was deported. Those are some tough times then, too, and we'll get back to that. Emma Goldman defined her type of patriotism. She said, the kind of patriotism we represent is the kind of patriotism which loves America with open eyes. Our relation toward America is the same as the relation of a man who loves a woman who is enchanted by her beauty, yet <laughs> who cannot be blind to her defects. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's well put. Goldman had a way with words. And, and I think what I would particularly say, of course, is that, if, that when we love someone in any way, certainly romantically or as a family member, that not only do we have to see the fullness of them, um, the best and the, and the perhaps uh, the qualities in so need good. of continued work, but <laughs> that, that when we see that ladder, it's in order to try to help them become a better version uh -huh. of themselves, right? And that, that's in true. fact... If we love someone, but we pretend there aren't flaws or defects, ultimately what we're doing is, is a disservice to them. We're not in any way mm -hmm. loving them as fully as we should. So I think what Goldman really is getting at there is not just the idea of, of the two sides or the multiple layers, but that blind love, truly blind love, is, is ultimately not really love at all. It's a kind of an, an, an idolization or a, a superficial um, a kind of obsession which doesn't allow either the lover or the one being loved to be their best version of themselves. It doesn't push toward that real possibility. And in fact, it kind of ultimately makes it impossible to become the best version. So I think in love and in patriotism, there's a necessity of both sides of that coin in order to sort of uh, become the best version of what we can be. Wow, interesting. Yeah, you explained that very, very well. And as well, I was born in 1950. Yes, I'm really that old. And when I was a young teen in the mid-60s, I heard BU professor Howard Zinn. I can still see him up there speaking about the roots mm -hmm. and meanings of our war in Vietnam. Up until that point, I had believed it was conventional wisdom. Yeah, we went in with the best of intentions to save democracy from the imposition from the outside of oppressive communism. He explained what to me was unknown but actual history. And I don't think Trump would want us to learn such things like the French colonialists in the, you know, for a long time, they had starved, literally starved the people of Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh was expecting America to stand with his struggle for liberation from their often brutal oppression by the French occupiers. Howard Zinn passed away many years ago, but boy, his legacy certainly lives on. Today, there's a burgeoning education tool being used by a lot of high schools across America 
which is based on his best-selling People's History of the United States. I highly recommend it. The Zinn Education Project is what came out of his life and his work, and it makes available totally free to teachers anywhere many course curricula. One teacher puts it this way, the Zinn Education Project is my compass in a sea of corporate textbooks, packaged common core curriculum and standardized testing. Ask any teacher about that. I will tell you, Zinn's speech and his book have had a profound effect on me, which lasts to this day. Why do you think the Zinn Education Project is so treasured by so many teachers across America? Including me. I'm a huge fan of it. And I actually yes. have a calendar, um, a calendar oh, yes. uh, from it on, on the wall in my office um, at Pittsburgh State where I teach. And I think what's what's most impressive about it is the resources it provides, the access to primary sources, the access to documents, the access to the histories and stories through through the words of those who were there, of those who were part of them, of 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 the figures and communities uh, that embodied these histories and stories. I think part of what someone like Trump gets so wrong is the idea that this is about an indoctrinating teacher standing at the front of the room, trying to sort of get every student to think the way that teacher thinks. Um, I've never met a teacher who thinks that way. At least very, very few of us, what most teachers, certainly what all good teachers think is, I want to give my students as much as possible. I want to give them the resources. I want to give them the opportunity to learn, to research, to learn, to, to read, to grow. And the Zen Project does that as well as any resource I've encountered, just provides so much for students to use, for teachers to use, for classrooms and schools to use. And and that could lead to all sorts of follow-up arguments and ideas. It doesn't lead to just one interpretation it's the opposite. It provides the material to really get into the discussion and the conversation and the debate um, that is genuine critical thinking. And that is what this other emphasis is so trying to deny right. by limiting access to those kinds of conversations. So I think this in project is one of the best, as you say, free, public, open sets of resources about American history that I've encountered. And it just has such breadth and depth of those of those resources for whatever we collectively can do with them, which is just about anything that we're able to. You know, and I think about various different oppressive regimes over history. Uh, it, no matter when, the the right-wing monarchists or dictators, whatever, one of the first groups of people that they go after is the educators. And mm -hmm. they often go after them, you know, placing them in jail or somehow liquidating them in some other fashion, getting them, shutting up their mouths. And right now, they, the Trump right just despises uh, colleges and universities for being liberal bastions. They're not telling the truth. They're, they're liberal indoctrination centers. I, I think, as that uh, movie with uh, uh, Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth, I think we're seeing that right now. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Ben Railton, who's written about Trump's new threat to academic freedom and to teaching critical thinking among our kids. Uh, his so-called Patriotic Education Commission, yet another battle over the meaning of those words. Where does that stand right now? It's a commission 
I mean, Trump would love to just make it happen at the snap of his fingers, which he loves to do. But, but what is this commission? Where does it stand? And what would be the bar barriers to having that imposed on our schools? Yeah, so right now it is uh, simply a, a, a group of, of uh, people, combination of, of some of some scholars and then and then some other kind of commentators who Trump has has assembled in an effort to create a curriculum or at least the idea for a curriculum um, known as the 1776 project or the 1776 um, curriculum is at least partly how it's been framed and and I don't think any of that has has happened and honestly so much of the time. These ideas are put forward by the, by this administration and then go nowhere. It's more about the speech and the kind of the riling up of the base. So I don't know how much. I mean, obviously not before the election, but I don't know even in the worst case going forward. I don't know how much that curriculum would ever be fully created. But that's the ostensible idea that this group of uh, of, of folks will create this curriculum, 1776 curriculum that schools would be. I guess the word would probably be required in Trump's mind to yes. implement, to, uh, to use, um, which of course is not true of the 1619 project. There's no requirement. It's a resource like the Zen materials, it's an option for schools to use. Um, oh, freedom, of their freedom of choice. Freedom of choice. Whoa. That, that crazy <laughs> thing. Um, and, and that's one key barrier. One definite barrier uh -huh. is that education systems work on the local level. They work yes. in the, state level to some degree. Um, and then they, they have, you know, there can be national standards from the Department of Education, but the idea of imposing one curriculum um, in such an absolute way would take all sorts of revisions of those processes of those governmental um, frames. And, and so I don't think, honestly, that, that that is even really the goal so much as, again, presenting this case for this us who are threatened by this this uh, demonized them um but but yes in the in the worst case version of the future and you just referenced it with some of these other regimes um including current ones like putin's russia that i think yes. trump is certainly seeking to emulate Absolutely. yes in that worst case then scholars are enemies of the state yes. um if the if the state is me if the state is the administration then not just critical thinking, but scholarship is, is an enemy of that, of that entity. And so I can envision, um, in that worst case, mm. um, teaching as either, um, allegiance or treason <laughs> to put it bluntly. And, um, and I think that is the long range goal of that kind of thinking. Again, it would take incredible horrific steps to get to that point in the U S but that is the ultimate sort of end of that slope, I would say. Boy, you're inspiring a lot of memories in this old guy. I remember in high school reading about the cave, Plato's cave. And for those who mm -hmm. may not be familiar with it, he describes a situation in a cave where there's a source of light in the center and people are chained up around uh, the, the source of light looking at the wall and specific shadows are cast on the wall. That is all people can see. The what freedom is about and what learning is about for Plato, I believe, was daring to get out of the cave and to look around at the real light. I have a feeling Trump mm -hmm. would uh, like that cave. That seems like that's what they're trying to do. And from a teacher who uses the Zen Project, and there are quite a few, she says, or he, I'm not sure, actually, from voter ID laws to voter roll purges, gerrymandering, to poll closures, to the deadly in-person 
voting conditions during a pandemic, the right to vote is under attack and the stakes are high. Is it critical? It is critical that students learn about this fight for voting rights, past and present. And the struggle, end of quote, the struggle for voting rights was rather big in the 1960s. Lyndon Johnson uh, did a good thing by in, in trying to uh, solidify and protect voting rights. What if this is not taught? What are the dangers if this isn't taught? The, you know, because I expect the Proud Boys and other groups to try to intimidate us at voting day. They know where the so-called liberal enclaves are. This is uh, going on right now. So what if we don't know? What if kids are not taught about the struggle to protect voting rights? Well, I, th I think there are at least a couple hugely significant dangers, both, uh, both of which are, are absolutely present in 2020, as they have been throughout our history in, in various ways. Um, one of them is precisely what you just referenced, which is that that the right to vote and the vote itself has been consistently threatened and attacked and under under siege, um, and often through violence, certainly through collective attempts to suppress, uh, not only through, say, law, but in person, through intimidation, through through violence. Um, and if we don't learn about the fight, we certainly are not as likely to learn about those histories and be prepared for their continued presence, for yeah. continued uh, new versions of those kinds of efforts to intimidate, efforts to suppress um, in the law, in person, um, and in, in all sorts of other ways. So that certainly is one piece of why it's so important. But then the other one, and the more optimistic one, which is what I always try to come back to even in 2020, hard as that can be, is <laughs> yeah. um, almost impossible sometimes, but I keep yes. trying. And and to me, both the vote itself and even more so the fight for it from so many uh -huh. communities, from women to African-Americans to um, Native Americans to many, many others, um, both the vote and even more the fight for it are embodiments of what I would call active patriotism, uh -huh. of the idea of, of patriotism as not simply sort of accepting narratives as a given, mm. but in seeing that we have to take action to continually um, express that patriotism and more importantly, help the country be that best version of itself, that it takes continued action to do so. That's really what I mean by active patriotism, service and sacrifice, um, not just on our own behalf, but in service of these ideals, in service of this best version of ourselves. And I think voting, and again, even more so fighting for that yes. possibility of voting, is a, just an absolute embodiment of that idea of active patriotism. And we have so many models of those who, who did that. One that I point to in this book of mine um, are the suffrage activists uh -huh. in the 1910s, right, in the, in the final push for women's suffrage, um, who literally, again, talk about violence. They were not only um, arrested and jailed, but there was at least one night, it came to be called the Long Night, huh. when a group of these suffrage activists were savagely beaten throughout an entire night in a prison in Virginia, um, including um, many prominent ones, Alice Paul, uh. Um, uh, Dorothy Day, the future very prominent uh. Catholic uh, writer, sure. was part of that. And and and. And that wasn't incidental. That violence, that 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 oppression through violence, was because of the fear of of the vote, because of the fear of of, of what these women were active for, what they were expressing their active patriotic service toward. And so I think if we don't learn those histories, we don't learn about the oppressions that are continuing. But we also have a harder time being as inspired as we yes. should be by the fight for the vote and by how much then 
we have to carry that fight forward. And that feels, it's such a proud history. And mm-hmm. people are learning it, and teachers are learning it. And I, I will say my my daughter's uh, dormitory at her college was the Alice Paul dormitory. Mm, so, nice. yeah, nice. absolutely. And people, uh, people are learning that. Trump calls his proposal patriotic education. Let's look at what that might be. You write, Trump and company are expressing a familiar combination of celebratory and mythic patriotisms. I often say that myth is so much easier than history. Myth is so simple. <laughs> you don't question it. Yeah, I, Quite frankly, when I see these signs settled in 1620, whatever, settled? What? There were people there already. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they should just say, Settled by white people in 1620. So what what would Trump's uh, uh, ideal patriotic education look like? Can you give us some examples? Sure. And when I say uh, mythic patriotism, which of the four categories I trace in this book is the one that I am the most critical of, that I would I would argue is the most damaging and destructive form of patriotism. And it's because of two ways that it excludes, two ways that it kind of creates division and excludes Americans from it. And one of them is what you just referenced, which is a form of patriotism that depends on histories that exclude so many American communities from those histories, like uh, the history of, say, European settlement that, that entirely excludes Native communities, Indigenous communities. Um, and often even other European communities, it's often very Anglo, very Anglicized in the way that narrative is created, certainly here in Massachusetts, for example, with the English Puritans. So that's one way that that mythic patriotism works, is it creates histories and and says that the only way to be a patriot is to celebrate these particular histories, uh-huh. which, which exclude, which exclude so many communities, so many stories. And then the other kind of related form of exclusion that we've talked about already today is the exclusion of any critique of that narrative, saying that anyone who criticizes that celebratory vision, that mythic (laughs) celebration of a very particular American history and story, anyone who criticizes those is unpatriotic, is un-American, is treasonous. And so that's an equal exclusion. It's an exclusion of those who would push back on the other exclusion, on the mythic history, um, and defines them as unpatriotic as well. And I think that combination is precisely what Trump is arguing for, a form of education that only celebrates and only celebrates a very particular mm-hmm. slice of American history and that sees those who would do anything different, like these teachers that he's critiquing, as un-American, unpatriotic child abusers. Mm. Um, and so I think that's, that's the core of that mythic patriotism that I want to define is those two forms of exclusion, those complementary ways of, of defining us versus them um, when it comes to how we think about America and patriotism. Gosh, it seems to me as what Trump is trying to uh, impose is what I used to consider un-American. I mean, where's freedom there? That's mm-hmm. something else. And there, are, you say in your upcoming book, Of Thee I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism, that there are four forms of patriotism. You, you mentioned the mythic and the celebratory. What are the other two as you define in your forthcoming book? Sure. Um, and, and the third is one that I was talking about a few minutes ago with the vote, active patriotism, um, that idea of, of taking action, service and sacrifice in service of our ideals. Um, and I think what makes that really important as a challenge to the first two is that so much of that first two of the vision of that mythic celebratory form is more passive. It relies on, on people to kind of accept existing narratives, 
participate in existing rituals without without really um, necessarily um, thinking more critically about them or taking action of their own. I think that celebratory mythic form depends on a kind of passivity, depends on an acceptance of given narratives. Um, mm. So I think active patriotism as a third category is really important because it suggests the opposite, that we all have a more active role to play. But I would definitely say that active patriotism, in my argument, needs to be wedded to the fourth kind, which is what I call critical patriotism, a form of patriotism that, as we've been talking about in various ways, um, like Emma Goldman's quote, sees the flaws of what we love in order to try to push that thing we love toward its ideals, toward its best version. Critical patriotism is still deeply patriotic, despite these attempts to define it as something different. Mm. And instead, it, it is an argument that patriotism is, again, fundamentally requires both that, that, that attachment to, but equally and even perhaps more fully, that willingness to see where the nation has fallen short mm -hmm. in order to push it forward. Um, and so I think those third and fourth types, active and critical patriotism, are both challenges to the celebratory mythic type, but they also make clear that patriotism isn't just the province of that first type. I think too much of the time, um, even those of us who might be critical patriots kind of seed the conversation over to that first type and say, that's what patriotism is, so I'm, I'm opposed to it. I see it as a problem. Rather than saying, no, there are alternatives. There are visions of patriotism where we can express the narrative that, that we see as the most important one while still defining ourselves as patriots as well. Boy, that <clears throat> touches uh, right here at home. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I, having been in the New Hampshire State Center for a long time, I, you know, there was a lot of pushback. People didn't like my positions on some things, but I, you know, I get used to that. You got to develop a thick skin. But when people suggested that I wasn't patriotic, that really made me very, very angry. I consider myself very much patriotic. And it amazes me how these people that go around these, these gangs with their big Trump flags, I prefer the American flag myself. But that, you know, how they can have both the American flag and the Trump flag on the same pickup truck, yeah, I don't know. Well, they're just passive. And, go ahead. And often the Confederate flag, too. I was oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can't forget that. That's our, our lovely history. In fact, that does bring up, you know, Trump doesn't want to look at our Confederate history. His people love that stuff. They, they've, they've, some people have said slavery eh, it wasn't so bad after all. Uh, you know, that's, that's a brand of history that we're supposed to just lie down and accept and, as you say, be passive. Now, I will say that I think a lot of the Trump people and people in general— they, they've grown, we've all grown up with the term patriotism. Nationalism is often confused with patriotism. Uh, and that I've learned from so many instances in history that nationalism is, again, something else. It's ugly and by its nature insulary and hateful of the others. That's just part of nationalism. There are too many examples, but one century ago in America, almost... Word for word, what we hear today, uh, immigrants are different. They are not 100% American. You know, there's Americanism. There was a terrible, uh, as you mentioned, the Sedition Act of 1918. Uh, you, you write that uh, Attorney General William Barr, boo hiss, wants to revert to this extreme version of mythic patriotism's exclusion. Uh, is there, are they talking about 
nationalism. Uh, they they somehow want. Are they confusing nationalism and patriotism? Or they just want to replace real patriotism with nationalism. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, first of all, on that general duality, those two terms, and then a couple things about that particular historical moment because it has so much to tell us right now. Please. Um, but yes, I think nationalism is a really important word to differentiate because it brings with it that that chauvinistic us versus them, that sense of of the necessity of that division in order to be a part of this nation and to celebrate this nation. Um, and and I think that that division is absolutely what I would define as nationalism in order to make clear that patriotism, again, can both be more critical toward our own nation, which nationalism doesn't allow for. It's more than my country, right or wrong philosophy, and can also recognize the relationship between our nation and others, rather than being that chauvinistic divisive us versus them. So I just would absolutely agree. And I think it's important to keep those terms present and separate so that we can, again, make the case for patriotism without it bleeding into that nationalistic um, division and, and, and us versus them mentality. And then absolutely what Woodrow Wilson and Congress and many others argued mm-hmm. for successfully in the 19-teens, which became the Espionage Act yes. of 1917 and then the, uh, the Sedition Act of 1918, just to highlight two quotes that really get at, at what you're highlighting and at how much they echo where we are right now. So part of what Wilson argued for when he presented these to Congress originally, and it took a couple of years of debates for them to pass, but when he presented them, part of his argument why we needed an Espionage Act and Sedition Act was that, as he put it, there are citizens of the United States born under other flags, but welcome under our generalist naturalization, generous naturalization laws, who pour the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life. So associating, again, disloyalty, treason with these immigrant arrivals mm. and this idea, this, this implied but very clear idea that, that their allegiance um, could not be as absolute as that nationalistic model depends on, that they always were going to have these divided loyalties, um, these, other, these other allegiances. And then when those laws are passed, um, the Espionage Act and even more fully, I would argue, the Sedition Act embody some of the worst uh, moments in American legal history, the history of our laws yeah. in, in, in enacting that. And the Sedition Act in particular of 1918 made illegal, quote, any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States or the flag of the United States. Mm. Um, illegal, illegal to even say things that were <laughs> critical of the form of government or the flag. And, and the Sedition Act was so extreme, just to give one example of how this was applied, um, there was a filmmaker, a German immigrant filmmaker, Jewish a German immigrant filmmaker named Goldstein, I think Robert Goldstein, um, who was the producer of a movie called The Spirit of 76 about the American Revolution. Mm. And the movie's about the revolution, so the British were portrayed critically, as you might imagine. Um, but the British were our allies in 1918 as World War I was, the U.S. involvement in World War I was unfolding. Yeah. And so Robert Goldstein, this producer, was brought to trial under the Sedition Act for depicting the English negatively in this film about the Revolutionary War. Yeah. And he was convicted <laughs> under the Sedition Act and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And I have the quote here from the judge at his trial who said to him um, at his sentencing to 10 years in prison, count yourself lucky that you didn't commit treason in a country lacking America's right to a trial by jury. You'd already be dead. Um, So 
that's the effect of these narratives. It's not simply about ideas. It's about defining any voice, any voice that, again, and any community, like, say, those immigrant communities, and then any individual voice, whether a teacher or an artist or an activist who isn't 100% allegiant within that frame, loyal within that frame, as treasonous and, and deserving, basically, of, of execution. Um, and that's not really hyperbole. That was literally sort of how that law was applied. Ah, I'm sitting here with my mouth open. I knew a little bit about that, but not that much about it. That is amazing. I knew a lot of people got hurt from Woodrow Wilson's clampdown on on freedom. A lot of presses were wiped out. Uh, you know, they used the mail to stop stuff they didn't like. And of course, when you talk about the flag, I think of uh, Colin Kaepernick. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and Trump saying mm-hmm. we must salute the flag, and he literally has wrapped himself in the flag while <laughs> stepping on the Constitution and, and uh, just mm-hmm. attacking what I think is real patriotism. For those who may have just tuned in to all this good fun, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, Professor Ben Railton, who teaches at uh, uh, English Studies and uh, he coordinator of American Studies at Fitchburg State University. And we're talking about an article he wrote, Trump's Patriotic Education Commission, Yet Another Battle Over the Meaning of Those Words. And you got to have the context to understand what's going on now. Because if, you know, if these things don't come out of nowhere. They don't just arrive mm. fully hatched. They've been doing it for a long time. And you got to have the right tools for the job. And if you don't know a little bit about how the heck we got here, your tools for the job are, are limited. you got to know what works and what doesn't work, at least if we have some freedom. And I have to bring up uh, Nazi education. And I know, mm-hmm. you know, people, the people on the right go absolutely berserk if you compare Hitler to Trump. Well, I'm not doing that. However, the reality is the Nazi party directed propaganda at children in Nazi Germany between the 1920s and 1945, specifically to influence the values and belief of future generation of German citizens according to their political agenda and ideology. Their propaganda took advantage of children's ignorance with schools heavily using propaganda to indoctrinate children into Nazi ideology. His, his, Hitler's ideologies were taught to the exclusion of other ideas from the to the entire population of German children. And they were instructed to report any activities or conversations that could be considered treacherous or treasonous. Children reported the activity of neighbors, teachers, religious teachers, and even their own family. We know the right goes nuts if there's comparison, as I said, of Trump to Hitler. What, what about this? Can Is that just too far out, or are there some frightening similarities? I think that there are, and I think that if, and I, I mean, I would argue at length, I, I wrote a recent piece for my Saturday Evening Post column about the presence of Nazism in the United States in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, so I think there's not there's not a division between Nazism and U.S. history. They are interconnected, and it's always worth thinking about those interconnections, first of all. But even if the interconnection in a particular comparison might seem like a potential distraction, might seem like it could lead to a debate over over something that isn't the main focus, I think the main focus of what you're saying is how authoritarianism works, how authoritarian 
governments work and regimes work. Uh Um, And so even leaving aside specifically just Nazi Germany and Hitler, it is vital for an authoritarian government to survive, to not only sort of clamp down in the present, but to attempt to sort of influence that arc of the future so that there aren't future generations of protesters and activists Mm. and those who realize that this authoritarian regime is not the only way and that there are other options, there are alternatives, especially in the country's own history and identity, that there are models for Mm. resistance and models for other ways. And so absolutely, I think education and, and that authoritarian form is an essential element of the way that kind of regime stays in power, comes to power and stays in power. And so I think it's not coincidental that as we see sort of more and more brazen and blatant statements from Trump and his administration of at least their sort of uh, pipe dreams of an authoritarian future mm-hmm. with, you know, no getting rid of ballots and, you know, staying in power for multiple terms and, you know, so on and so forth, you know, passing power to your children, all the things that authoritarian mm. regimes seek to do. Um, I think it's no coincidence that education has become this newly present emphasis, not just to create that current us versus them that we've talked about today, but also with that idea that the next generation can either be potential resistors or they can be participants in that sort of Hitler youth idea and that that um, that next generation of this authoritarian state. And so, yes, I think that is how they work. And I think education is either a vital tool for highlighting those alternatives in such states, or it's in service of kind of maintaining the power of the state. And I think those are the two main possibilities a lot of the time. Wow, I I really like education very much, and I, I, I I'm not, I bet uh, I hope they pay you well. They probably don't, but then again, teachers, <laughs> you know, you probably you probably pay more taxes than Trump did. But uh, what oh, I yeah. what I see is, I guess they're called Gen X, young people these days. I am so encouraged by them. The vast majority of them, you know, racism, forget it. Homophobia, what are you, nuts? You know, these people, they they just, they accept uh, and welcome, welcome others. And that must really get under the skin of Trump people. They probably want to make sure that doesn't ever happen again. And you talk of education constructing a sense of national belonging and community. Those rituals and that community are at least potentially inclusive, able to be shared by all Americans. What, what about this? And, you know, some, being a teacher, you must have some sense of optimism that we can help kids out. And you've seen, I mean, it's so great to teach kids and have them, you know, appreciate it. And I, you know, some of my teachers in life, I just will always treasure their memory. So what kind of teaching can there be in these rituals and community being inclusive and shared by all Americans, you know, a vision of some good education. Yeah. And, and, and the first thing that I would say about that is just that the reason I I make that case is that if I am to be optimistic about the future, and it certainly includes uh, the younger generations, both those of the college age students I teach and of my own sons who are 14 and 13, their generation too. um, If I'm going to be optimistic, it, it has to include a way of thinking about a future where we can be more unified. Um, I think sometimes those on the left um, are, are sort of so willing to kind of highlight the, the divisions, the understandable ones of, of you know, certain ways of thinking from, from those on the left, that it can be really hard to imagine that possible future that is more unified, an American future that mm-hmm. is more of a communal one. But if we're going to get 
forward, if we're going to move forward, there's got to be some version of that. There's got to be some more unified future. And I think one definite way to get there for me, and mm-hmm. it's something I, I sort of make a centerpiece of all of my work as a teacher, as a writer, is highlighting the histories, the stories, the figures, the communities that do embody the best of us, that are inspiring. Um, and they often are critical patriots, but they're always inspiring. And 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 again, I think the idea that it's one thing or the other, either it's the sort of mythic celebratory yeah. vision of America, or it's just a kind of rejection of America and an attack on it. Besides being wrong from the, the Trump side, that idea is also wrong because America includes so many of those stories and figures and histories that are inspiring, that are models of the best, that are exemplary stories and histories. And one that I like to highlight here in Massachusetts that is starting to be taught maybe a little bit as I've seen my sons come through school, but not as much as it could be, are these enslaved African-Americans in the Revolutionary War era in Massachusetts when slavery was legal in Massachusetts, as it was in all 13 colonies at the time. Um, It stops being practiced in Massachusetts because of these enslaved African-Americans, particularly a woman named Elizabeth Freeman and some of her allies who explicitly under the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which quoted the Declaration of Independence that all men are born free and equal, they said, wait a second, under this Constitution, slavery cannot exist. We are born free and equal. These ideals mean that we can't be enslaved. And they brought that to the legal system in Massachusetts, to the courts, and it led to a Supreme Judicial Court decision in 1783 that agreed with them and said, yes, under the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, slavery cannot be legal. Um, and this was because of these these enslaved people and their allies and the actions that they took. And that's, to me, an embodiment of those revolutionary ideals, those mm. American sort of constitutive ones. And, the, and a story like that is one that all Americans can celebrate. Yes. All Americans can highlight as an example of the best of how our ideals can be inclusive, can apply to all Americans if we fight for them, if we argue for that, if we push for that. Um, as they did, as their allies did, as we can continue to. And so I think that kind of teaching that offers those kinds of stories, the resources that we've talked about, that that places like Zen provide, um, and allow students to learn those histories. And in so doing, they're also learning the darkest histories, like the history of slavery. But at the same time, they're learning these inspiring figures, communities, stories, moments that embodied the best of us, not sort of in opposition to the hardest part, but in spite of it and, and transcending it ultimately. And, and I think that's what education can really do is offer all those different sides, but maybe ultimately those visions of, of models for the best that we can then seek to kind of carry forward and, and build on. Yeah. Like black lives matter. I, I actually, uh, I have a good friend who from that she's white and learned, she had thought that, you know, slavery, the history of slavery was just something that, that uh, black Americans had to deal with. Then she realized, oh, my God, this is something I got to deal with. This affects me. This is part of who mm-hmm. we are. And it's so great to, you know, then you can really address the problem. For those who, again, may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, Ben Ralton, Ralton rather, uh, who's got a new book coming out called Of Thee I Sing. The Contested History of American Patriotism. And again, if I hope he's able to put it out because this might shake up uh, Trump if he's there in January. But let us work hard. Let us take our voting rights <laughs> seriously and do it. You know, there's that wonderful quote attributed 
I don't know if it really is. It, it, to Thomas Jefferson, dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Well, you have a quote from James Baldwin illustrating this belief. I wonder if you could uh, access that and, and share it with us. Do you think patriotism uh, of dissent is still widely accepted? Um, no, it's not <laughs> widely accepted. And, and that is why, again, I mean, I'm trying to highlight all these histories in, in this book, all these different visions of patriotism. But at the end of the day, if the book has one central goal, it is to make an argument for critical patriotism, for that idea of, of patriotism of dissent as dissent, as embodied in dissent. And the epigraph of the book is this quote from James Baldwin, because I think it sums that up uh, as well as any that I've ever encountered. It's from um, Notes on a Native Son or Notes from a Native Son, his 1955 essay collection. Yeah, um, uh, he writes you know, uh, absolutely powerful book. And in that opening essay, that title essay, he writes, quote, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. And there's a lot that I love in that quote, but what I really like especially is that seemingly sort of additive, not necessary for the grammar of the sentence phrase, exactly for this reason. But he's not just saying, I love her and I want to criticize her. He's saying, because of my love, exactly for this reason, mm. I insist on that right. Um, that's the heart of critical patriotism is that it is not just a sort of add-on. It's not just like an extra adjective applied to the noun. It is a, a phrase that, that has its own internal meaning. It can't, you can't separate the two things. It is a vision of patriotism that says this vision of it at least, and I would argue like Baldwin does, ultimately the most essential one for the, the health of the nation, the strength of the nation, is the one that does both, that has the love and the right to criticize that, that is about mm -hmm. that combination of things. And I think he sums that up and he did throughout his work really, really potently. Um, and there are lots of other voices who have too, mm -hmm. um, including some of the ones we've talked about, Emma Goldman and, and others. And, and I think if we can better include that in our conversations, because as we just said, I don't think that it yet is right. what it does again, is it opens up the possibility for that unified vision of the future where we can all be patriots while still recognizing the ways we need to keep moving forward rather than saying you either are a patriot or you see these issues and problems and flaws past and present. Um, without that presence of critical patriotism, without that idea of it, I think it will always remain that division between either I'm a patriot or I see these issues and I'm criticizing them. But what Baldwin reminds us is the exact opposite is true. Like the combination is the key. Ah, the combination is the key. That's a very Good point. And I think it's still the case that all kids are taught the Pledge of Allegiance. Trump, of course, is furious at anyone who dares not to say the pledge or kneels during the national anthem. You know, everybody knows the Pledge of Allegiance, but I suspect uh, whoever Richard Stans is, uh, I suspect very few kids are taught about the origin of the Pledge of Allegiance and who its author was. Please teach us what, who was that and what was his intent? Yeah, this is one of those examples of how even the rituals, those kind of those celebratory rituals, if we really look into them, can can open up these ideas of, of say, active and critical patriotism, because the author of that Pledge of Allegiance was a, a Baptist minister and activist named Francis Bellamy in the late 19th century, um, 1892. He uh, drafts that pledge as part of a, a project um, for a magazine called the Youth's Companion that was having a project for the 400th 
Columbian anniversary. Um, he drafts it as part of that. But he wasn't just a, a Baptist minister. He was what he called a self-identified Christian socialist, uh-huh. um, a progressive activist. He actually founded an organization, um, uh, the organization, the Society of Christian Socialists, a Boston-based organization that he founded, which were dedicated to sort of advancing these deeply progressive ideas. He left one church because he was preaching about economic inequality, and they asked him to stop, and he wow. left instead. Um, he left another church in Florida because they were segregated, and he asked that they integrate, and they wouldn't do it. Um, and when he wrote the pledge, he explicitly talked, um, when he reflected on that that writing, about that critical patriotic goal, writing it as an aspirational idea uh-huh. for what the nation could be. And so he said, for example, when he was writing it, that he when he got to the end, when he got to the um, the Republic for which it stands, um, uh, with liberty, justice for with liberty and justice for all. That last phrase. Um, when he originally was thinking about writing that, he said in this later reflection, "Just here arose the temptation of the historic slogan of the French Revolution, uh-huh. which meant so much to Jefferson and his friends: liberty, equality, fraternity." And then he says, "No, that would be too fanciful. Too many thousands of years yet off in realization. But we as a nation do stand square on the doctrine of liberty and justice for all." So he's highlighting those ideals, but he's doing it in that aspirational way. If we can keep moving forward toward them, toward that full version of them, toward that ideal mm. um, representation of who we are, and and that and he lived that. He lived that in his life continually. That that aspirational, critical, patriotic goal of pushing the nation forward. And if we remember that, then it makes the pledge not what it sometimes can seem to be, which is this sort of weirdly kind of authoritarian. Mm you know, allegiance ritual. Um, but instead it makes it into an opportunity for all these kids to also think about how they can help make that Republic into more of that for which it stands, how they can help the activists for liberty and justice for all, which is what Bellamy was, what he lived his life to be with that, that activist. And, and so I think even the celebrations, which again, can at times feel more passive or more, um, like the celebratory mythic form mm-hmm. can be can be expressions of active critical patriotism of of an ideal that we seek to move toward rather than that we already believe we have achieved and that was certainly mm-hmm. how Bellamy thought of it. Mm, interesting, and I can only imagine young people must eat this stuff up. You know, it just opens up their eyes. It's exciting. It's as you say, aspirational, and that must scare the you know whatever out of Trump. Just to to close up, another teacher using Zinn's curriculum, it says, more than anything, this moment right now in 2020 feels like a reckoning with the United States past, with its long history of white supremacist violence from slavery to George Floyd, an equally long history of black resistance, end of quote. With all the problems and challenges, there is always opportunity. This discussion about what kind of patriotism curriculum in our schools comes at a unique I hope, moment in our history where perhaps we're about to turn, I don't know, knock on wood. What opportunities do you think this controversy may offer for very, real positive good? I think it offers three, and I'll just quickly say them because we've talked about them throughout this great conversation. Um, three uh, ways to redefine, to redefine the three sort of terms at the heart of Trump's proposal, but also at the heart of, of an alternative proposal. So one is education and this idea that the goal of it that I would argue for and that we can see this as an opportunity to make the case for is to provide students and all of us with the fullest version of these histories and stories, the hardest one, but also the much more inspiring one, 
than the authoritarian one could ever be. So that's one redefinition. A second one is this redefinition of patriotism to say that that you can be a patriot. In fact, you perhaps can only be a patriot ultimately with all of that in mind, with those hardest histories that we need to understand and challenge and with that ideal version of ourselves that we can push toward and be modeled by all those who have helped push toward it in response to those hardest histories, in response to those flaws and failures. So a definition of patriotism that sees it as truly shared and truly critical in that way that can move us closer to our ideals. And then the final redefinition that I think all this makes possible is of of that we, of that American we. Mm. And it's a way of seeing us that is not ultimately that doesn't require those exclusions, those myths, those exclusions, those us versus them, that says we are all part of that us. And what we share ultimately is that project, that aspirational project of making ourselves that more ideal version. And if we teach that more fully, learn it together, share it together, we can maybe start to genuinely move toward that ideal. That's the, that's the hope. And I think this is a moment where we can, we can make that move. We can begin to make that move, yes. Uh, very ex- I always like to end on a note of optimism. Very optimistic. Really, it's been Thank a you. pleasure talking to you. And the book is due out in January of The I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism. I look forward to seeing, is it, seeing it. Thank you so much, uh, Ben Railton. Uh, this is fascinating discussion here, and uh, it gives us some reason to hope that we can learn from history. I know we hardly ever do, but... Uh, and integrate it into our lives and be better patriots. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bert. I appreciate it. Oh, beautiful For heroes proved In liberating strife Who more than self Yeah.
Yes, it is.